This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pets Mean Business on Pet Life Radio. I am your host, Dustin McAdams. Thanks for joining me once again. Today, we're going to talk about a bit of a hot topic, U.S.-based manufacturing. And we're going to talk to a guy who's directly in the trenches, building a company in manufacturing here in the United States, in Colorado and Minnesota to be specific. But first, let me paint a little bit of context on this Made in America issue. In 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization, and the Great Recession hit us in 2007, both important factors. Since then, we've lost 5 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S., It's about a 30% decline. The result is it's created a lot of hurt for people in communities. Jobs that once existed simply don't. Communities that were once anchored around fading manufacturers have suffered tremendously. And we've all heard a lot about it recently, with a huge wave of political rhetoric around keeping or reviving manufacturing here in the U.S. But is it legitimate and reasonable? Is nothing really still made here in America? Well, no. The answer is no. That's just not the case. Over the last three decades, the output of U.S. manufacturing has actually doubled. So what gives? That's not the message we continually hear. We hear lots of political blustering about jobs being shipped overseas and the need to bring manufacturing back home. Well, many politicians, especially our current bunch of them, play awfully loose with facts and honest promises. Automation impacts U.S. manufacturing jobs far more than overseas importation. Studies show that over 80% of our manufacturing job losses have actually been due to productivity gains. In other words, robots, not outsourcing, are the major culprits. So it's pretty unreasonable to think that the factory jobs of decades ago will once again return. And those who have been trumpeting that it can happen, in my opinion, are pandering at best. However, does this mean that we shouldn't still seek to buy American? Do we just throw in the towel? My answer to that is no. It's not a binary black and white issue by any means. We're an interconnected world economy, and in some cases there are superior foreign-made products. But I do prefer to buy from U.S. manufacturers where there's a reasonable choice for my personal use as well as for my company. U.S. manufacturing still creates local jobs. Even though automation will increasingly mean less of them are factory floor types. And U.S. manufacturers must adhere to labor standards that just don't exist in some parts of the world. It's not perfect and certainly fair wages can be argued. But young children aren't being exploited here and you won't find factories falling on top of their workers. Plus, some environmental impacts can actually be reduced through U.S. manufacturing. For example, a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is a result of not shipping goods across oceans. But finding U.S.-produced products in some categories is challenging. Dog toys are a great example. Head to your local big-box retailer and look for U.S.-made dog toys. My guess is that you won't find many. It's an industry where cheap Chinese manufacturing is very prevalent. So when I do find companies like the one owned by today's guests that make high-quality toys here in the U.S., I like to buy from them and support them. Our guest today has a really interesting story. He's Adam Baker, a guy who spent years working for a few of the biggest brands in sporting goods and apparel, like Nike, Under Armour, and Crocs. He decided to make a change, leaving sporting goods and launching his own brand in the pet industry, Soda Pup, with manufacturing based here in the U.S., focused on dog toys that are good for you, your dog, and the planet. And he's also doing some really cool things that help animal rescue efforts. You can find Adam and his company online at sodapup.com and on Facebook at MySodaPup. We'll be right back to talk with Adam and hear all about his story right after these messages. Tell 
Tired of wasting money on giant bags, boxes, and jugs of litter that don't last? Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter that lets you use less and get more. World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to deliver outstanding odor control and easy cleanup. It's lightweight, 99% dust-free, and pet, people, and planet friendly. It's even flushable. Make the switch to World's Best Cat Litter and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Pets Mean Business on Pet Life Radio. With us now, Adam Baker, founder of Soda Pup. Dog toys that are good for you, your dog, and the planet. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dustin. Appreciate it. Yeah. So how's it going today? <laughs> it's been good. Busy. Packing lots of orders. <laughs> That's good to hear. So first question for you to kind of introduce you to our audience. We met you at a uh, cocktail party. How would you describe yourself? You know, I think I would describe myself as a corporate refugee turned entrepreneur. Uh, after spending 20 years in the sporting goods industry, working for some amazing brands like Nike and Under Armour and Crocs, I wanted to build a business of my own. I wanted to do something different. So my family loves dogs. We have three three adopted dogs from the local Humane Society. And, you know, the pet industry looked really attractive. I'd been studying it for a while. And it looked like there was room for innovation in a different point of view. So let's uh, let's talk about a little of those opportunities. So you said you'd been researching the industry, saw some gaps. Specifically, where did you see opportunities that, that led you to make that kind of change in your career? Well, you know, the pet industry has grown dramatically. And so that's what attracted me to it in the first place, just watching it grow even throughout the recession. And so I started taking a closer look. And, you know, our observation was that there's a lot of sameness in the pet industry. And so really the first opportunity was just to bring a different point of view. The sporting goods industry and what I was doing prior to this and the pet industry actually have several things in common. So it may not be as big a leap as it, as it sounds like on the surface. You know, when I was at Crocs, we were making primarily, you know, molded rubber footwear. Now I make molded rubber dog toys. So uh, there are a lot of similarities in the manufacturing process, although most of the Crocs production was done overseas. And then the second big thing that attracted me to, this, to the pet industry was the fact that it's, it is an emotion-driven category. So in the sporting goods industry, you know, it's really fueled by people's passion for sports. So when you buy a pair of basketball shoes from Under Armour, you know, really what you're doing is buying into the magic of Steph Curry sinking a three-pointer to win the game. And companies leverage that emotion to sell their products. And of course, in the pet industry, you know, people are crazy about their pets, their dogs, their cats, and, and other small animals. And we thought there was a real opportunity to leverage this crazy dog love into a lifestyle pet business. So those were the two main things that kind of caught my eye. Interesting. So and for a little context for everybody, so... Adam talked about growth in in the industry, kind of at the highest level. The pet industry for a couple of decades has since seen stable growth of about five percent combined annual growth a year, which is really healthy. It, it outpaces a lot of sectors in the market, particularly through the recession. I mean, the industry grew at four percent in two thousand and eight. Exactly, which is astonishing. Yeah, and I think there's there's some uh, you know somewhat anecdotal data behind that that I've always found interesting, especially through those years. You see 
pet spending outpacing a lot of things that are sometimes surprising to folks, like uh, households that on average will spend more on their pets than they do on alcohol, spend more on their pets than they do on men's clothing. So, you know, you talk about coming out of industries where major consumer goods and into the pet industry, but the reality is, and I, th- I think you've underscored this well, that it's a very emotional driven, uh, very economically stable industry that that is huge. Last year, the figures clocked in at $69 billion total for the industry. So interesting on that. Let me ask you this. And, so, you know, just, just to interject, Dustin, yeah. you know, the interesting challenge is to figure out ways to bottle that emotion and do it in new and creative ways. Uh, when I say there's a sea of sameness in the pet industry, it appears that most companies do things the same way, and uh, it's important to differentiate. And so I think that's the really interesting challenge is how to come at this from a different approach. So I know your products well, but I'm sure many of our our listeners may not. So talk a little bit about how you guys have specifically done that, because I think you've done it very well. Yeah, so you know, we did a lot of research before we jumped into the business, and we learned several things that were instrumental in our success. The first thing was, as you mentioned at the top of this uh, podcast, there's an increasing demand for USA-made products. And in the beginning, that demand was more around food and treats, things that dogs consumed. But that desire for Made in America has continued to broaden beyond consumables. And dog toys are the next logical step because these are things that dogs put in their mouths. So you want to make sure that the product is safe. If they do ingest the product, you want to make sure your dog's not going to get sick. So Made in the USA was a, was a huge trend that we identified. Uh, the second thing was people were looking for more options. I mean, honestly, there are some products that have been in the industry, dog toy products specifically, that have been in the industry for 40 years. And dogs are like people. They get bored with their toys and they need new things to entertain them. And so we found that retailers are always looking for new types of dog toys so that their customers can keep their dogs entertained. And then the third major challenge, which I'm sure you're aware of uh, with your business, is durability. Dogs get great satisfaction from destroying their dog toys Obviously, you don't want to spend a lot of money on a toy to have it <laughs> chewed apart in five minutes. So, you know, we wanted to focus on really durable dog toys as well so that the consumer feels like they're getting a good value and the dog is getting a toy that they can love for, for more than a few minutes. Yeah, great points on that. So if for any listeners that are waiting until after the podcast to go look you up, give a little context of the type of toys you produce. I think sure. it, that oh, probably sorry. helps paint the picture. Sure. sure. So we focus now on molded rubber dog toys. So these are toys that are made in large steel molds, and they're made from natural rubber. So the beauty of natural rubber is that it's a sustainable material. It actually comes from rubber trees. Rubber trees produce latex for about 40 years. So it's, uh, it's all very healthy. Of course, the tree is producing oxygen, consuming carbon dioxide, so it's good for the planet. It's a natural product. It's FDA compliant, and it's very, very durable. So in a nutshell, we make molded dog toys from natural rubber in the USA. Awesome. And so, and I can tell you a little bit more about the Soda Pup brand. You know, with each brand that we create, we wanted a fun consumer hook. And rather than doing traditional dog shapes, which are very common in the industry, things like dog bones, we wanted to do something completely different. And so we focused on kind of iconic food items for the Soda Pup brand. And the first product we did is called the Can Toy, and it looks like a soda can. Uh, it comes in four sizes, uh, depending on the size of your dog. It's very colorful. We do orange and green and purple and black and bright pink. So we started with the can toy, and then we 
We expanded to other products. We've got a, a new toy that looks like the bling ring candy from your youth. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a dental toy that looks like the red, white, and blue rockpsicle that the good humor man used to come by with uh, back in the old days. So all of our products are kind of designed around this theme. So when, when a retailer buys the whole presentation, you get this really compelling, colorful, fun, quirky presentation of dog toys that's unlike anything else that's available in the industry. Yeah, there is no doubt you guys have um, you have done a lot of unique stuff in this category. And I give you kudos. We get uh, a tremendous amount of positive feedback on your products from our customer base. They really they hold up well, and they're they're cute and interesting. Beyond, as you said, some of the products that have been around for decades now. So, yeah. where's the vision of the future? Where do you guys go from here? So, you know, our vision is that all consumers are not alike, and you know, our observation of the pet industry is that everything is kind of the same. And so we think there's lots of room for exploring products that speak more directly to different types of consumers, consumer subgroups, if you will. And so we're working on several additional brands beyond Soda Pop that address different subgroups, if you will. So, you know, it's interesting if you look at at the industry, there's a need for super durable dog toys. And there are businesses that are built just around super durable dog toys. And so we think, okay, that's an interesting problem that consumers have. Maybe we can address that, but it would probably be best addressed under a different brand other than Soda Pop. And so we've developed a concept around, essentially around Super Chewers. And so we'll be launching that at Super Zoo, and I can't tell you more about it just yet. (laughs) We're working on actually three additional brands beyond that, and each of those has a unique point of view. And then the other part of it is that there's many different distribution channels that buy pet product. There's the pet specialty channel, which is independent pet retailers, big box pet retailers, and so on. Then you've got online retailers, which is really a different channel, which is very difficult to manage. Then you've got hardware. Most hardware stores carry dog toys. You've got grocery. You've got farm and feed. You've got outdoor stores. And I think the mistake that some brands make is they try to do too much with their brands. They try to sell to everybody. And of course, there's mass retailers as well, the Targets and Walmarts of the world. And so, you know, some brands have gone down the path of trying to sell to everybody. And I think longer term, that doesn't work um, for retailers, for most retailers, uh, particularly for pet specialty retailers. And so a part of our multi-brand strategy is also a channel strategy where these new brands will be targeting specific distribution channels so that we don't create conflict. So, for instance, the Soda Pup brand is a pet specialty brand, and we've done several things to protect the independent pet retailer. We have a a minimum advertised pricing policy, that policy, which we police, and our goal is to protect the independent pet retailer who buys that product from us. So we don't discount it on Amazon. We don't sell to Chewy.com because Mm -hmm. there's such heavy discounters, and we don't sell that brand to mass retailers. But you know, other brands that we develop in the future might be specifically targeted towards those other distribution channels. So brand management is a huge opportunity in the pet space. Yeah, I think one, it's uh, it's an interesting and pretty comprehensive strategy you guys have. Certainly uh, spoken like an experienced person out of the branding space. So talk a little bit about, so you did spend a lot of time with some really big successful brands in that space. What do you carry with you from, from the days of working on in sporting goods and consumer brands that help you today with, with Soda Pop and as an entrepreneur? Gosh, you know, there's so many lessons that have accumulated over the years. But, you know, I would say the number one thing that I've learned over and over again is that product is king. 
So it doesn't matter if you're a $30 billion company like Nike or whether you're a small startup like we are, uh, Soda Pup. If your product isn't good, you know, if your product isn't surpassing expectations and kind of delighting your consumer, then it doesn't matter how much marketing money you put behind it. You know, it's just not going to be successful. So there was a saying at Nike, we used to say product is king. And that's absolutely true. You've got to have a great product. So that, that's probably the first thing. The second thing I would say is that innovation is absolutely essential to long-term success because the market doesn't stand still. Consumers don't stand still. And so you can't ever rest on your laurels. You have to constantly be innovating. Uh, and that can be innovation in design. It can be innovation in materials. It could be innovation in you know, molding techniques. It could be you know, innovating your supply chain. There are lots of ways to do it, but you have to constantly be pushing forward because if you're standing still, then you're going to get left behind. And then we just talked about distribution, but that's a huge lesson from my experience in the sporting goods industry is that you have to control your distribution to protect your retailers. Because if, you, if you're not looking out for your retailers, then you know, they're not going to be looking out for you either. So it's definitely teamwork between sellers and buyers. You know, when I was at Under Armour, Kevin Plank, the founder of Under Armour, had four maxims written on his whiteboard. And it was just his, his very simple roadmap for how to build a great business. And it touches on some of the things I've just talked about. The first maxim was build great product. The second maxim was tell a great story. He would always add to that, uh, simply told. You, know, you can't get too complex or technical. You have to tell a simple story that people can grasp quickly. You need to build a great team. And then you have to service the business. And the way he always said that was over-promise and then deliver, <laughs> which is... Uh, Gives you an insight into his personality. He's a pretty intense and, and aggressive guy, which is why he's so successful. I like those. So while everyone ponders on those maxims for a second, we're going to take a quick break. So we'll be right back with Adam Baker after these messages from our sponsors. When I adopted her, she was a mess. Scabs, itching, licking, missing fur, hot spots, a thin, dull coat. So I take the dog to the vet for the standard run-of-the-mill tests and treatments. No results. I hear your advertisement on the radio. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. So I get the five-pound box of Dynavite and the Lico Chops. Within a four-week total, instead of a German Shedder, I have a German Shepherd. Sheba is a 105 lean pounds of shiny, smooth, happy dog for life because she gets fed Dynavite. And the results, they're just incredibly outstanding. And she loves it. When you rescue a dog, you have to do the right thing. You've got to feed him right for life. Do the Dynavite. Dynavite for life. 859-428-1000. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Love to spoil your dog, but no time to shop? Well, check out PupJoy.com! Dog parents are raving about them. They deliver amazing boxes of treats and toys directly to your door. Premium goodies from indie brands, all customized to your dog's unique needs. So you can relax and spend more time on important things, like couch cuddles and belly rubs. Get personalized boxes of joy for your pup. Plus, built-in support for animal rescue, all for less than you'd pay at the store. Save $10 on your first order today. Go to PupJoy.com, customize your plan, and enter Pets Mean Business at checkout. P-U-P-J-O-Y.com. 
Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back with Adam Baker of Soda Pup talking about product innovation and manufacturing in the U.S. So, Adam, let's go into the manufacturing side of this a little bit. Tell us about um, specifically how you guys handle research and development and how you've made decisions around manufacturing. Sure. Well, so like you mentioned uh, earlier on in this podcast, it's difficult to manufacture things in the U.S. And so you really have to be committed to it in order to find solutions to make the economics work. And as I mentioned before, one of the things we found when we were researching the pet industry is that there was a strong desire for made in America products. So we were committed to figuring out a way to do that. And we can talk about it a little bit later, but there's, there's many reasons to produce in the U.S., not just to create jobs in America, which is certainly a benefit of it, but there are other benefits in terms of managing a business, which we can talk about. But, you know, the big challenge to manufacturing a mobile dog toy in the U.S. is the cost of the tooling. If I were to manufacture my product in China, I would probably buy a small, inexpensive two or four cavity tool. I would kick out 24 toys an hour. Um, But because the person running that press is paid very little, because they're low environmental standards, you know, the cost of producing 24 products an hour in China is quite low. The question is, how do I how do I match that low pricing and still manufacture in the US? And the answer to that is to not build a two cavity tool or a four cavity tool, but to build a twenty cavity tool. So I can pay a man or a woman, you know, eighteen dollars an hour to run a machine in the US. Uh, the difference is that every six minutes you're kicking out twenty toys instead of four. And so, you know, you're, you're producing almost 100 toys an hour versus, you know, 20 toys an hour, 25 toys an hour. So the economics start to make sense. But you do have to overcome that tooling challenge because a 20-cavity tool made in the USA is quite expensive. So it's not without some financial risk on our part when we introduce a new toy. Uh, we, have to, we have to find a way to buy that tool before we can introduce it into the market. I think that's interesting and uh, honestly, very insightful for those of us who aren't behind the scenes with manufacturing day in and day out. What were the big things you had to go through to even solve that equation of of how do I maximize output while manufacturing here in the U.S. in terms of identifying the right processes or tooling to be able to drive the business and compete? Well, so, you know, we end up taking a larger financial risk to introduce a toy because of the cost of the tool. So then the question is, well, how do, we, how do we mitigate that risk as much as possible beforehand? So there's really no substitute for, you know, evaluating how dogs use dog toys, talking with a lot of people, a lot of customers, a lot of dog owners, spending time in dog parks, understanding your consumer, right? You, before you design a product, you need to have an insight. The insight informs the design. So we spend a lot of time doing that. We 3D print everything before opening a tool so that we can be sure, you know, we can see a three-dimensional object, make sure that we're comfortable with the way that it looks, you know, whether it's manufacturable, whether we can fit treats inside of it and so on. So you can mitigate a lot of risk that way as well. And then, you know, you can work with people that have a lot of experience in the pet industry. And one of our suppliers has been making dog toys for, for another brand for Many, many years, at least 20 years. And so we, we certainly leaned on them for a lot of their expertise when we were first starting out. 
So those are several ways that we that we reduce the cost or the risk of, of introducing a new toy. But you know, there's another thing that's worth talking about here, and that is, you know, what are the other advantages of manufacturing in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, when we set out to build this business, you know, the beauty is you can build it in the likeness of your own value system. So we knew we wanted to make things in the U.S. We knew we wanted to have a natural product that was that had a minimal impact on the planet. That our material actually biodegrades, which thermoplastics don't. So, so you know, we're focusing on all those things. But you know, the other piece to manufacturing in the U.S. is that you don't pay duties on imports, so you save money there. You certainly save on transportation costs because I'm not shipping things halfway around the world to get to my market. It's produced, you know, in the case of my Colorado manufacturer, it's, you know, it's made 15 miles down the road. So we have a lot of oversight and control and quality assurance because we're co-located. And, you know, we have a lower carbon footprint because we're not shipping things on container ships around the world. So. Mm-hmm. So those are all benefits. And then there's a, there's a financial incentive. So I talk about the financial risk of the, the tooling, but the flip side of that is when you have high-capacity tooling, you can respond to demand very, very quickly. So if I were making products in China, I have to plan at least two months in advance, three months in advance to place an order, assuming I already have the tooling, because they have to make it. They're doing low-capacity manufacturing, so it takes a while to make the product. They've got to put it on a boat to get it here. In the U.S., I can place an order and I can have inventory in under two weeks. So that means I don't have to carry as much inventory. So I, that reduces my capital constraints. So rather than tying up capital in inventory, I'm using my capital for new product development, which allows me then to introduce products at a faster pace. I think that's fascinating. And honestly, I think this is some of the real story behind modern U.S. manufacturing that I'm, one, I'm glad you're sharing it because I don't think we don't get a lot of exposure to this. I think those are real value drivers. And I think it's probably interesting for a lot of folks to hear some of the consideration and considerations and options that you go through as a U.S. manufacturer in making those decisions. What have you found, aside from the manufacturing processes, what have you found to be some of the biggest challenges that you faced in launching and building the brand? Well, you know, the biggest challenge in launching a brand, launching a new brand in a new industry, new to me, is probably one of the most difficult things you can do because you don't know anybody, you don't have years of experience in the industry. So, so it's certainly just been a challenge familiarizing ourselves with the industry and the account base and building those relationships. Those have all been, you know, typical startup challenges when you go into a new industry. But it's also the flip side of that is that's what makes it so interesting and fun is doing something different. And I like to believe that I, because I don't come from this industry, I come to it with a fresh set of eyes. And so I might see opportunities that others don't because, you know, they've been, they've been in it for so long. Um, so just building those relationships has been, you know, probably the first and biggest challenge. We're so grateful for, you know, the people that stop at our trade show booth love our product and decide to give us a try, even though they've never seen us before. You know, that's, uh, we owe a lot of people a lot of thanks for taking a chance on us. Yeah. And just for context for everybody, when did you guys launch? We launched the Soda Pup brand in early 2015. Okay. So kind of the flip side of that in, you know, the course of just a couple of years of really starting to propel the, the brand, what have been some of the big early wins that you think helped you along the way? 
Well, you know, like I said, we owe a, a huge uh, debt of gratitude to all the retailers that, that just came by our trade show booth at Global Pet Expo or Super Zoo and, and decided to give us a shot. So you know, when you build any business, it's always those early adopters that can make a huge difference for your business. So that, that's really where it started for us. And then, you know, the second kind of big step for us was we made the decision, partly because of my own professional background, we made the decision to go global right from the start. So traditionally, brands used to build their U.S. business first, and then when they had enough momentum, brand recognition, and so on, they would then make the move to Europe and build the business in Europe, and then they would go to China and then Latin America or whatever. But, you know, the, the world is just getting smaller, and with social media, you know, we do Instagram posts every day, and I've got people all around the world responding to my Instagram posts, and we've actually found a number of distributors that way in other parts of the world because they see our product on social media. So, so we made the decision to sell globally right out of the gate. And, you know, within our first year of business, we were operating in 12 countries. Now we're up to 18 countries. And those inter international distributors are a huge part of our business. So that was the second thing. And then the third really interesting phenomenon, which you're very familiar with, is the subscription services, which is a whole new distribution channel, which enables new brands like mine to get very broad exposure. And we've been able to work with a number of subscription services, uh, including PupJoy. And it's been a wonderful experience for us, hopefully for, for them as well. And we've, we've just gotten a lot of product out there through the subscription services. And then a lot of the people that subscribe to the services, uh, as I'm sure you know well, they like to take pictures of what's in the box and post it on social media. So then you get that, that extended exposure through their social media activities. So yeah, it's just a different world. You know, it's a different world and I think completely different rules apply to brand building today than, you know, even 20 years ago, 15 years ago. It's very interesting. And uh, yes, I, w I would agree. Consumers, when they love the brand, when they love the service, can be a huge asset in some of the stuff they share. And personally, I appreciate all of ours that do, and I'm sure you do as well. So I want to shift a little bit. So I know you you personally and you as a company do a, f a couple things that help impact the shelter animal problem we have in in the state. So let's talk about those a little bit. First, let's talk about your involvement with International Hearing Dog, what it is and and how you're how you're integrated with them. Sure. So let me just start by saying that when I started True Dogs LLC and the Soda Pup brand, I wanted to create a, a company that was socially responsible from the start. And, you know, it's really easy to put off being involved. It's easy to put off making donations when you're small because you can't afford it. You don't have time, whatever. But our belief is that no matter how small the act or the donation, it's important to do it right from the start. And so we've been committed to, to doing that, giving time, giving product. We're not in a position to give cash, but um, we give what we can is the point, despite being small. So with regard to International Hearing Dog. Uh, so I'm a member of the board, and International Hearing Dog is a it's a nonprofit based here in Colorado, and their mission is to rescue and train shelter dogs, and then train them to assist people who are deaf or hard of hearing. And so it's a win-win. They're they're actually they're rescuing dogs that are destined for euthanasia. You know they're going to be put down, yeah. and they take these dogs and then they train them, and then those dogs become an aid 
to a person with a disability. And you know, the thing about deafness and hard of hearing is that it's an invisible disability. So it doesn't get as much attention as other types of disabilities. But have, you know, these dogs can be invaluable. So, so I view it as a win-win. Not only are we rescuing dogs, but we're helping people in need in the process. So it's a really, really interesting program that I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of. Uh, International Hearing Dog is it's 38 years old. In this year, 2017, they're going to place their 1300th dog, which is pretty wow. amazing if you think about it. So, you know, it costs a lot to train a dog. It's about $10,000 all in all for the training and, you know, kenneling and so on. And then the travel to match them up with the recipient and train the recipient on how to interact with the dog. It's about $10,000 a year per dog. So uh, the goal is to train 36 dogs this year. So, you know, you can do the math. We need to raise a lot of money. And I would love to, I hope I'm not out of line here, but I would love to challenge your listeners of the podcast to, to help us raise enough money to train one dog. I'm wondering if, you know, could we raise, all the listeners on this podcast raise $10,000? And all you have to do is go to the website, which is hearingdog.org, click on the donate button and make a donation. And then there's a place where you can add in a text. And if you just typed in podcast, then we'll be able to track it back to this conversation. Well, that's awesome. And I sincerely hope, hope the organization is able to raise some money and I look forward to seeing the results. I think I think it's a phenomenal cause. I love organizations that have dual purpose like this. There's another one in Chicago that I am fairly attached to. That, And I love to see anybody who's helping get dogs out of the shelter and rescue system, but specifically when that cause can also be tied to helping something else in society. I think you guys do a phenomenal job with that. For all the listeners, look into it. If you're interested at all, maybe take Adam up on the challenge. But I look forward to seeing the results of it. So beyond the International Hearing Dog, I know you guys also do you do some programs with the business itself that directly impact the lives of shelter dogs as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we actually do three different things. And just tell you a little story about the first one. So I was actually up at the factory one day uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago, and I was just watching them throw away into a bin all of the cosmetic seconds. So these are the products that had molding defects of one type or another that would not be suitable for sale. The product is perfectly functional, but it doesn't look nice. So that stuff was being put in a trash can and hauled out to a dumpster where it would get hauled away to a landfill. And I thought, that's insane. I mean, we're trying to be an environmentally friendly company and we're throwing away all this product that's absolutely functional. And so we created what we call the Rescue Squared program. And it's called Rescue Squared because we're rescuing the product from the dumpster. And then we donate that product to humane societies around the country where they are given to rescue dogs in their kennels. So again, the product's never being sold. It's just being used in the kennels. Yeah, Um, really smart. And uh, so it's a win-win, you know, and we're keeping stuff out of the landfill. We're able to give to humane societies, all of whom, you know, need donations. So that's where it started with the Rescue Squared program. And then the second thing we do is, you know, we get a ton of requests for fundraisers for a lot of these 501c3 nonprofits. And so we, we will donate, you know, first quality product that can be used in a raffle or an auction uh, to raise money. And then the third thing we do is that, you know, many humane societies have a retail shop in their facility. And so when you adopt a dog and you, you go to pay for, for the dog and the medical care it's received and so on, you can pick up a collar and a dog toy while you're there. And so what we do is we sell our products to, to those shops that are part of the humane society. 
at a very deep discount. And that allows them to sell it at full price. You know, they respect our MAP policy, but it gives them a huge margin. So it's, in effect, it's a way for them to raise extra money. So those are the three things that we do with the business to help humane societies. Well, I got to say, Adam, it is a lot of territory and progress over a uh, less than three-year window for you guys, and kudos on that. And I, I really Thanks. appreciate you sharing some time and sharing some of your insights today. With that, we unfortunately got to call it a wrap, but I want to thank you very much for being here. And of course, uh, thank my producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Adam, if folks want to reach out to you with any questions or comments, because I have a feeling you probably touched on a bunch of areas that are going to be interesting for people. How can they best reach you? The best way is actually through our website. So you can just email me at info at sodapop.com. All right, perfect. And for everybody, once again, if you want to find SodaPup and Adam online, uh, they can be found at sodapup.com, on Facebook at MySodaPup, or Twitter at TrueDogsLLC. That's T-R-U-E Dogs LLC. And always, you can reach me by email at Dustin at PupJoy. That's P-U-P-J-O-Y.com, at PupJoy on all major social media, and online at PupJoy.com. So my friends, happy tales to you until we meet again. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.